You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. I feel like I remind you of this regularly because it comes up in my sermons. And so if you know one thing about me by now, you probably know that I read a lot of books. Um, but I don't necessarily reread a lot of books. Most of them are books that I'll, I'll read once, kind of take what I can from it, glean what I can, and then move on. But there are a couple of books that I've reread several times in my life, probably chief among them um, being J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I've, I've read that one a bunch of times, and of course that's the masterpiece that he's known for. I love Tolkien's writing, um, and, but there's, so because I love that book so much, I've sought out a few other things of his, and there is, um, not only has he written one of the greatest works of fantasy that has influenced that entire genre, um, he also has coined one of the best words ever, um, but it came in an essay that he wrote on fairy stories. Um, he's talking about what these kinds of stories are supposed to be. Fairy stories are not just stories that feature little pixies or something like that. They are stories that feature the land of fairy, a land where, there is, where magic of some sort is real, where there is peril and danger, but that also wonderful things can happen. We know that many stories that we tell that happen in the land of fairy, while there is great danger, they have this turn where they have the happy ending. And J.R.R. Tolkien considers that turn to be one of the primary features of a properly told fairy story. And he coins a word for that term, eucatastrophe. The, the good catastrophe that comes, where everything seems like it's dark, everything seems like everybody is destined to doom, but a sudden and unexpected grace appears, a miraculous grace that rescues the hero, that rescues those who still have hope and brings them into a place of joy. And of course, this features prominently in his own writing, the moment where the the company sees Gandalf again after they think that he has lost is a moment of eucatastrophe. The moment where Frodo and Sam lie on the side of the mountain and the eagles come and lift them up and carry them out and they suddenly, they think they're destined for doom and instead they are saved. The moment where Sam wakes up and sees those who he thought were dead and says, is every bad thing going to come untrue? Those are moments of eucatastrophe. And um, during the first two weeks of Advent, we spent a great deal of time talking about suffering and sin and judgment. Because when we are looking at the return of Jesus as king, we are also looking at the return of Jesus as judge. And we need to enter into and be aware of those themes. Today's readings, though, feature a turn. A turn to joy, where we hear in the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. We hear in Zephaniah, sing aloud, O daughter Zion, Rejo- shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. Because Tolkien was himself a Christian, and he said that the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of the human race. And so we cannot properly enter into this the joy of the birth of Christ 
unless we have felt the weight of sin, the weight of our destruction, the weight of doom. It's no accident that these weeks proceed as they do. This isn't just we're trying to get to all the themes of Advent. We're supposed to talk about the second coming, we're supposed to talk about judgment, and then we're going to talk about joy, and we're kind of, they're, they're just kind of disconnected. It's telling the great story that the human race has fallen, and we are doomed. We are in a sure and certain doom, but there is catastrophe. There is good news that breaks through, and it gives us hope, and it gives us joy. And it's that joy that we look at and focus on this morning. But that joy can only be experienced by those who understand the depth of the problem. The joy can only be experienced by a people who have been humbled. This truth lies at the heart of our Old Testament passage today in Zephaniah. The portion of Zephaniah that we read is the last portion of the book, and it is a song of joy. But the majority of the book is a declaration of judgment. It's a declaration of judgment against Israel's enemies, and it is a declaration of judgment against Israel herself. And it focuses on that day of the Lord that he is coming and that they are not worthy. They have fallen short. They have not held to the promises that they made to God. And because of that, they are destined for destruction. If we jump back a little bit before our reading and look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, we can kind of see a little bit of the culmination of this proclamation of judgment. It says, I said, surely the city will fear me and will accept correction. It will not lose sight of all that I have brought upon it. This is God speaking. A, a surely they are going to turn to me. But they were the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. They aren't turning on their own. Their plight is beyond their own hope for salvation. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, for the day when I arise as a witness. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger. For in the fire of my passion, all the earth shall be consumed. There is destruction coming. There is doom coming, but the judgment does not have the final word. And it's because the proud will be struck down and only the humble will remain. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 feature this turn that allows us to enter into the joy. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will pasture and lie down and no one shall make them be afraid. It is the humble ones who are invited to sing the song of joy. This is always the way of things in God's kingdom. It's reinforced in our New Testament reading. Um, 
Joy is one of the major themes of Philippians, but so is humility. So the joy that is in Philippians comes as a joy for the humble. The reading that we had today was Paul talking about joy, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I read this in a different Bible, so my... my um, place is finding uh, the wrong, I'm finding the wrong spot on the page. Um, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. In the ESV that we read this morning, it's let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Some form of the word joy occurs 16 times in Paul's letter to the Philippians. But it is also the letter that contains that beautiful hymn to Christ's humility. Back in chapter 2 where it says, um, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pattern in all of this is that Jesus was humbled before he was exalted. He was suffered before he entered into joy, and we are called to follow that same path. It's evident even within that portion of Philippians that we read and, and, um, where it talks about do not uh, let your gentleness be known or let your reasonableness be known to everyone. When it's talking about your reasonableness being known, it's not talking about your powers of logic, your powers of reason. Instead, what's at image here in this idea of gentleness and reasonableness is that as people don't listen to you, as they come up against you and set themselves against you, as they are, are people who have injured you and done you wrong, that you are willing to take that and to be wronged because you are not proud. You're not concerned about being right about things. Instead, you are humble because you are secure in God. And it is this humility that makes the joy that Paul commends to us possible. It is only the humble who can have the joy of the Lord. Our Zephaniah reading unpacks this in a variety of ways. So in Zephaniah, the first couple of verses that we read, where it says, Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. The humble person knows joy because they know mercy. Last week we talked about how if we cling to our sin, we cannot welcome the king who is coming. If we cling to our sin, then Christ coming to judge is not good news. But when we understand that we are a sinful people, when we let go of our pride, when we confess that we are wrong, that we are insufficient, that we do not hold up to God's standards, and we come to Him and we kneel before Him with humility, then we find instead the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
This is the hope of the gospel, not that God will proclaim, oh, you haven't actually done anything wrong. Not that God will say it was okay all along. That it was terrible that you were destined for doom, but God has taken away your judgments against you. Because God brings joy and grace to the humble. Back when we were looking at our book, of going through the book of James, one of the things that James said that, that sort of captures this in just a phrase is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is why John's preaching in our New Testament reading is actually good news. There's this spot in that reading that we have where it says John continued to proclaim good news to everybody, but this is like after what it has said is, you're a brood of vipers, and here's the things that you have to do now. Um, here's, you know, tax collectors don't collect too much money. Um, soldiers don't exploit. Everybody basically repent and turn away from your sin. And there's this, there's this disconnect when we're reading that. Like, I expect good news to be something that's telling me about something good that's going to happen. But it actually is good to be called to repentance. Because the good news that John is actually preparing people is, if you repent, God will show you mercy. The call to repentance implies with it the, the forgiveness that comes along that follows that. And it's only those who recognize their need for repentance. It's only those who recognize that they are a brood of vipers apart from Christ, apart from the hope of, of restoration, their, their deep need for mercy that will take joy in the mercy that is coming. This is the good news. This is why the humble are those who can receive joy. Continuing in Zephaniah in verses 16 and 17, it says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. The humble are filled with joy because they know God as their deliverer. If we have this expectation that we can do it ourselves, if we are clinging to the idea that I can make myself right, that I can save myself, that I can stand up against my enemies, then our repeated failures will just be frustrating and lead to despair. But when we recognize that we cannot make that stand ourselves, and we humble ourselves and we ask God for help, He comes as our deliverer. He sets us free, and therefore we have joy in that. As a parent, I see this kind of thing all the time. Um, and when my little girls, as they're growing up, they get to a stage where there's something that they want to try to do themselves, but they just can't do it yet. Maybe it's tying their shoes. And they'll sit there and you can watch their frustration grow and mount as they try it again and again and again, and they just don't have the skill yet to get it done. And then there's this moment where you come and help them. And when you come and help them, there are two reactions that you get as a parent. One is a, is a relief, a joy that finally somebody's coming who can do this for me. The other is a no, I want to do it myself. I'm going to yell at you and scream at you if you are coming to do this for me. Now, for kids, there's a little bit of a healthy note in this as they are learning to do things themselves. But the truth is, unlike tying your shoes, you can't practice until you make yourself holy. You can't practice until you save yourself from sin. But we act like that all the time. We act like we can practice ourselves into not falling short again. 
Like we can somehow, if we just band together and do things right, we can set our nation right. We can stand up against our enemies. We can make sure that there are no longer any poor in the whole world. If we just practice enough, if we just do enough. And the truth is that is always a path that leads to despair because when you step back and you journey far enough through life, you see, I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. No matter how much I practiced, no matter how much I tried, I couldn't make it. So when the humble recognize that we need God's help, we need Him as our deliverer, then when He comes to save us, it is joy. It brings joy. Then the second half of chapter 3, verse 17, contains this beautiful phrase that probably many of you have heard or um, before or had given to you as a verse, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In the end of the day, our joy comes not from our own accomplishments. There's nowhere in this passage in Zephaniah where it points to what we have done. It is all in what God has done. And in particular here, right at the center of this passage, kind of the heart of this song is the idea that our joy comes because God delights in us. It is the joy of being loved. The joy of knowing yourself as one who is loved by God. This is why the humble can receive this joy. Because if we continue to hold God at arm's distance, if we continue to to cling to our sin, or if we continue to claim that we can do it ourselves, then we cannot enter into that relationship with Him. But when we are humble ourselves and and receive the gift that He has given us, instead we find here that the gift is one of love, that we are loved deeply in a love that is secure and does not go away. We are wired to seek after this type of relationship. But for most of us, there's this peace that in our relationships, we oftentimes feel like we're a little bit insecure, like somehow it could fall apart. It depends upon what I do. It depends on me holding up my side of things. I've got to, I've got to keep it. I've got to keep it together. And if I fail, if I do something wrong to injure somebody, then that love can falter and it can fall apart. But the truth is, for the humble ones, we already know there's nothing that we can do to make God love us. We've already seen that time and time again. We cannot make His love. And because of that, because there's nothing that we can do, it's for that reason that His love for us is totally and completely secure. If you could earn it, then you could lose it. But you can't. You can't earn it. And when you are the humble ones who recognize that you cannot earn God's love, then you can just receive it freely. And there is great joy in being loved. Continuing in Zephaniah in verse 18. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you home, and at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Ultimately, the humbled one knows the joy of being lifted up. 
of being exalted, not because of what you have done, not because of what you have earned, but because of the Lord's mercy and grace, because of his good pleasure. So those who are the outcasts who end up being the ones who enter the kingdom, those who have no claim to greatness of their own, the lame, the outcasts, are gathered together and they are entered into the kingdom and they all will look upon them as those who have received great honor from the Lord. But it is only the humble who receive that honor. It is only the humble who are exalted. It is only the humble who truly know joy. There's probably nowhere in Scripture that this is more evident than in the story of Christmas as we look at Christ's first coming, and we see this again and again. Mary, the peasant girl, not even married yet. She has nothing really to claim for why God should favor and choose her, and she is lifted up and exalted above all women. Elizabeth, who is old and barren, who has received the scorn of her neighbors for her entire life for not being able to bear children, is suddenly given a child in her old age and becomes the talk of everyone as this woman who they thought was far beyond childbearing age instead is given a son. And she is lifted up and exalted. That son, John, travels out into the wilderness. Everybody looks askance at him. And yet Jesus himself calls him the one who comes before. Jesus points to him as the prophet who is preparing the way of the Lord. Jesus holds him up as one who is high and exalted. We see this in the story of Christ's birth. As the shepherds, those who are lowly and cast off and have no real status in the community, are the ones who get the announcement of joy, that the angels come to them and say, Rejoice! Because of what has been done for you. You could say the same thing about Simeon and Anna. Over and over again, it is the humble who are exalted. And of course, this is the ultimate example is in Christ himself. As we are reminded in that Philippians hymn, he was humbled. The very Son of God came and took on flesh. He became a man for our sake brought down from his his lofty place instead, came down to be with us as a baby. A baby who was born in a manger. He didn't even come as a king. Instead, he was born among the animals. And this is the ultimate example of the humble. And he is also the ultimate example of the one who is exalted as he lived his life faithfully to God, seeking the joy that was ahead of him, going to the cross, dying a criminal's death, but being raised again and exalted to the right hand of the Father so that we sing his name with all of the angels and with all of the saints where we ask the question, is he worthy? And the answer is he is. The one who was humble is the one who is worthy. The one who is humble is the one who was exalted. The one who is humble is the one who received great joy. It's only after we have suffered, after we have humbled ourselves to repent, after we realize that we come to God with empty hands and nothing to offer Him, 
that we can really truly know the eucatastrophe of Christ's birth and that we can know true joy. If you could turn the camera over here to the painting. There is, um, in this painting, from one of our early readings in the season of Advent, there was this idea of this, these streams of living water coming from the city of God. And you can see that coming down here. And one of the things that's in the features of this painting that um, relates to what this is talking about today, we've got all of these people here gathered, and the water itself kind of turns into something that resembles church windows. So we are gathered together in worship. And so the people who are gathered together are are us. You can see people that you know here in this painting, and not because there's anything great about us, but because God gathers these people and brings us into worship, and we are lifted up and exalted as we come and gather in worship before the throne room of the King, and we can gather and sing in joy together. So rejoice, you who are brokenhearted, Rejoice, you who suffer. Rejoice, you who are little in the eyes of the world. For Christ has come, and he is coming again. And it is you whom he has come to save. It is you in whom he delights. So like Paul, I will say it again. Rejoice. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.